0: Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Sarah Fenske. Earlier this year, a Florissant police officer was caught on video allegedly mowing down a suspect with his SUV, then tackling him. That horrifying video led to weeks of protests at Florissant City Hall. The officer was fired, and that likely would never have happened without the video being published by Real STL News. That was far from the only scoop where quote-unquote mainstream media outlets found themselves following the all-volunteer, online-only news outlet. In 2018, when two North St. Louis gas station workers were charged with assault for kicking a woman outside their store, Real STL News broke that story and that video. When a security guard later maced protesters on the scene, Real STL News broke that story, too. Co-founder Amir Brandy said that Real STL News was born out of a frustration with other St. Louis media outlets. He told St. Louis Public Radio fellow Kayla Drake that the black community wanted news that hadn't gone through the filter of mainstream media organizations.
1: We try to bring the unedited version of news. A lot of times mainstream media uh, waters
2: down issues that pertain specifically to the black community.
0: Amir Brandy said other outlets' perspective is shaped by the fact they're on the outside looking in, and that means they're missing a critical piece of the story.
1: Never focusing on what creates this outcome, uh, addressing the the issues and policies that that create the crime and the the savage uh, mentality that ultimately we have to live with and deal with every day.
0: That's Real STL News co-founder Amir Brandy speaking to St. Louis Public Radio fellow Kayla Drake. Amir says that the journalists at at Real STL News being part of the community they cover gives them a huge advantage over mainstream media outlets.
2: We can go into the trenches and they can't. uh, We can get the information when they can't. We can actually get information
1: even when the police uh, can't get it.
0: And that's Amir Brandy of Real STL News. Now, Real STL News is primarily based on social media. The journalists post on Facebook rather than maintaining a website. But even with that key difference, they're part of a noble tradition of black citizen journalists seizing the narrative to tell the stories they don't necessarily trust white-run outlets to tell. And joining us today to talk about that tradition and her great-grandmother, who was one of its foremost participants, is writer and educator Michelle Duster. And Michelle will be participating a virtual event hosted by the Missouri History Museum just next week. So, Michelle, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me, Sarah. So, your great grandmother, Ida B. Wells, this is a famous name in journalism. Uh, people have such respect for her work. She was a citizen journalist, and you say she was also one of the first data journalists. How so? Well, she chronicled um,
1: the realities when it came to lynching. And what she did was collect information about names, dates, um, circumstances, um, and other details regarding the lynchings that occurred. And so her information that she collected countered the narrative of the time, um, which was that people were violating white women. And so when she found that um, they were actually accused of, just say, petty theft or um, not, you know, walk, uh, getting off the sidewalk for somebody or things like that, you know, then,
0: um, then that countered the narrative of what was being told. So people were saying, um, oh, hey, this is because they've allegedly raped a white woman. She found a lot of facts to counter that. How did she go about gathering that information?
1: She went to the actual location where lynchings had taken place, after the fact, obviously, and, and literally talked to people in the community. Hmm. And through, you know, that firsthand um,
0: interviews of people who were there, that's how she found the information. Hmm. So what kind of repercussions did she face for, for setting this record straight, unearthing these facts that went against the mainstream narrative?
1: Well, um, (laughs) I mean, she it was a a combination of uh, things that she did that ultimately ended up in her um, life being threatened and her printing press being destroyed. Um, One was obviously um, collecting the information and um, proving that people were not being killed for the crimes they were accused of, but she also encouraged people to boycott white-owned businesses in the streetcars, and um, ultimately in Memphis to leave Memphis because she felt that there was no way to get justice. So Hmm. the combination of everything um, just uh, turned uh, everything upside down, and so they felt she was
0: dangerous and needed to be silenced. Hmm. I'm told that her newspaper office, this was the Memphis Free Speech and Headlight, this was actually burned to the ground. Was anyone ever apprehended for that crime? Not that I've ever heard of. Uh, So to this day, I think whomever did that was, you know, got away with a a major crime. How did she respond to that sort of threat, both to, you know, her livelihood and also to her person? I mean, I I can only go by what I've read in my research,
1: Um, and she she kind of downplayed it um in her autobiography of you know, basically like, Wow, I lost everything, so I guess I need to just keep going forward. Wow. Um
0: That's such a it's it's so, hard to imagine any of us having that attitude if we if we faced loss and threats like that. Right. Well she had already
1: lost a lot. I mean she had lost her friends, which is what which is what spurred her to investigate what really happened um with other lynchings and so I mean, she was living in a time where there was a lot of violence and um, threat, anyway. So, um, you know, it just seemed like her attitude was, if, if I'm going to die, I'm going to die fighting.
0: Hmm.
1: Um, because she had seen too many other situations where people were dying for not fighting. So, you know, I think she almost considered it to be war.
0: Hmm. So she covered some of these big stories. How did she evolve throughout her career? Well, she started off, um, you know,
1: when she first started off in journalism, she was writing about local issues that were affecting the African-American community, Um, hard news versus what was considered news that was relegated to women. Um, So she, in that way, um, defied stereotypes. Um, but she wrote about controversial issues that um, were happening in the Memphis community. Um, but things turned when she, um, well, she exposed inequality in the church in the uh, school system because she was a teacher. So that was one act of defiance, um, which also in, in, uh, resulted in loss because she lost her job. Um, she had started activism when she was in her early 20s when she sued. The Chesapeake, Ohio, and Southwestern Railroad for discrimination. And she wrote about that in the newspaper. So she had g- gathered a following um, where she was exposing inequality and injustice before her friends were killed. And so that was just sort of a continuum um, on her part. Mm-hmm. And um, so after she lost everything, she. Uh, basically made a statement that, you know, she had lost everything so for telling half the truth, so might as well go ahead and tell the whole truth. Hmm. And that um, resulted in her writing pamphlets, and then she ultimately did speaking tours overseas and in this country. Um, and she, uh, she, she stopped writing mostly articles and was mostly fo- focusing on pamphlets that were more expensive and required more research. So... Um she just continued growing <laughs> as a voice.
0: And were these pamphlets, um, were these largely uh, uh, targeted at the black community or was she also writing for a, a white audience?
1: I think she was targeting um, people outside of the African-American community because people, black people knew what was really going on. Mm-hmm. And so what her point was, was to help educate people outside of the African-American community to help people understand what the actual truth was and then to impact policy.
0: I understand that in so, addition... What I understand... Sorry, go ahead.
1: What I understand, she was uh, mailing the pamphlets to governors and senators and other lawmakers in order to educate them about what was going on. So her audience was absolutely outside of the... or her targeted audience was outside of the African co- American community. Um, because everybody knew what was actually going on. Mm -hmm.
0: So in addition to these threats of violence and, you know, people burning down her newspaper office, I understand she also faced a lot of criticism. Um, What were some of the critiques that were leveled against her for the work she was doing? Well, I
1: mean, she was called a lot of names. (laughs) Um, You know, variations of a liar um, and all kinds of names that we can think of today that are very disparaging towards women. Mm. Um, and so, and, and she was threatened even in newspapers of, you know, we're, we're going to tie her to a stake and burn her alive and um, things like that. Um, you know, some of her contemporaries, even within the black community, you know, called her ridiculous and, you know, absurd. And, and um, you know, they really thought that she was such a troublemaker and so outrageously outspoken that she was considered annoying. Um, So that kind of summarizes, you know, the
0: type of criticism that she experienced. We're talking to writer and educator Michelle Duster about her very famous uh, great-grandmother, that is the journalist Ida B. Wells, um, who did some pioneering data journalism as a citizen journalist, published her own pamphlets, told some stories that maybe mainstream media did not want to get out, and angered a lot of people in the process. What connections do you see between the work she did, this is all the way back in the 1890s, and the citizen journalism that we see happening today?
1: The parallels that I see are that um, the stories that are being told through citizen journalism are from the perspective of the people who are on the ground, right in the middle of the action. And so it's told from the perspective of people who are close to the actual subject versus people who are maybe from the outside of the community who don't necessarily understand all the nuances, history, and context. And so it's a way of taking ownership over um, their, your own personal experience and, and story. Um, so that's the, that's the uh, parallels that I see, because my great-grandmother was writing about what was going on in her uh, community from the perspective of, of black people versus, you know, the mainstream media was telling a very different narrative, which made it... So that black people basically deserve to be, um, you know, killed or otherwise injured or, or imprisoned or whatever. So um, she was helping people understand, no, this is not what's really
0: going on. Our community is being victimized. Do you see similarities between the overall news ecosystem then um, and what we have today? I, I do see some similarities because... Um, Too many times,
1: I mean, even just the language that's being used, if you look at, you know, certain mainstream uh, outlets versus um, some of the more local, um, you know, street journalism kind of uh, stories, just some of the language, you know, for instance, you know, thugs, anarchists, um, you know, troublemakers being used in, in mainstream media versus, you know, um, freedom fighters or, Mm -hmm. um, you know, other types of language that's more like, look, we are fighting for our rights. We're not destroying property or looters versus, um, you know, people who are desperate for um, supplies. I mean, there's been
0: a lot of study on on just the language, the, the way people are labeled. That is a big difference. That the mainstream media today is still sort of speaking to an audience that maybe includes some people, but doesn't include the community as a whole. Is is that part of it?
1: Yes. I mean, I think, um, I mean, it's it's not a secret that most mainstream news outlets have a very small percentage of their staff who are people of color. And so more than likely, a lot of these stories are being told from people who are not part of the community and maybe don't really understand some of the cultural nuances and history. So they're writing about things from their own personal perspective that might not be in alignment with what is really happening in those communities.
0: I want to go to the phone lines. Ron is calling from St. Louis, and and he has a question here for our guest. That's Michelle Duster, the uh, great-great-granddaughter of Ida B. Wells. Ron, hi, you're on St. Louis on the air.
2: Good afternoon. Uh, I'd like to congratulate them on the great work that they do, and also I'd like to disclose I've written articles for the St. Louis American involving kids in STEM, uh, kids that are getting degrees in medicine, engineering, and the, the mainstream media all kind of overlooks those type of individuals in our community and focuses on the crime aspect. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I've seen in the media is, uh, especially like in St. Louis County, they will report directions like north, south, west. And when there's crimes in, say, like North County, they lump it all together. But when there are crimes in other parts of the county, they don't even mention west or south. Or they might say a St. Louis County man, did this versus if it's a North County, they will say a North County that lives in Florissant versus just saying Florissant. Mm-hmm. So that to me, that is a psychological uh, trick that people use to, I guess, gin up uh, readership or, or, you know, if it bleeds, it leads. But I think black journalists need to speak out against that. When, when they see this slant of the way journalists is reported, is reporting, especially with crime. And there needs to be more focused, on the young kids in our community that are getting PhDs in engineering and going to medical school and becoming inventors and entrepreneurs.
0: Ron, thank you very much for that. And um, and congratulations for your work in the St. Louis American. Michelle, the St. Louis American is our, our black-owned newspaper here in town. They do terrific work. And it's it's great to have heard from somebody who's been a contributor. But do you think Ron makes a good point about how mainstream media outlets, they sometimes use geographic place names, maybe in a way that th- these are almost like racial code words. Um, I, I think Ron made a lot of really good points. Um, <laughs> um, as far
1: as uh, a lot of mainstream media, and I live in Chicago, and there, and what he said it absolutely applies to Chicago as well. As far as South Side, West Side, South Side, West Side, which paints everything negative, um, you know, with a broad stroke, there's a higher percentage of negative. Um, stories that tend to be told about African-American communities um, as well as, you know, sort of um, pinpointing, well, in Chicago, it's more, broad, you know, the, the entire South Side is sort of demonized um, versus it even being, you know, more specific. So it's very slanted. What I've seen is it's very slanted towards the negative when it comes to uh, covering African-American communities. Um, and, um, and, and just undertelling positive stories. So that leads to a misperception of what our communities are.
0: Now, Michelle, I know you're going to talk about this a lot more at the Missouri History Museum next week. Um, That event is called The Conversation with Michelle Duster, Ida B. Wells, and Today's Street Journalism. It's part of the How Did We Get Here series. That's from 6.30 to 8 p.m. on August 4th. We'll have a bunch of information about that on our website. That's stlpublicradio.org if people want to join that conversation. Um, But just one last question for you here today. I know you're going to paint a fuller picture of your great-grandmother's life. What is one thing about Ida B. Wells? that her fans tend to overlook when they talk about her?
1: I mean, through the research that I've done, you know, in order to uh, write the books that I have about her, one of the things that I personally um, find interesting about her that I think is sort of undertold and maybe underappreciated is how much of a business acumen she had. Hmm. Um, you know, it's kind of taken for granted that, yeah, you know, she co-owned a newspaper, she co-owned several newspapers, and she self-published her pamphlets, and that takes business sense. Um, and so I, I look at her as a businesswoman as well as a journalist and a civil rights activist.
0: Well, that's, yeah, she certainly is an amazing um, role model to so many people. We actually got an email from our listener, Ed, who lives in St. Charles. He says, I grew up in Memphis and attended the University of Memphis. I first learned of her in one of my black history classes in college and was drawn to her bravery. She is among one of my personal heroes and helped me to appreciate the role that journalists can play as truth tellers. So if you want to know more about that conversation, that is all happening next Tuesday. And Michelle Duster, I want to thank you so much for joining us today with a bit of a preview. Oh, thank you so much for having me on on the show. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU.